though it's hardly um, as familiar as 9-11, this past week we did commemorate the 76th anniversary of the uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, it's known as Pearl Harbor Day. In the words of FDR, it was a date that would live in infamy. It was on December 7, 1941, that the uh, United States was suddenly attacked by the forces of Japan, and it was an attack that would, of course, draw us into the Second World War, a war that would not be settled for almost four more years. By the summer of 1945, Nazi Germany had surrendered, but Japan was a, a, a final Axis holdout. Now, understandably, this has been a, uh, a very debated decision over the, de the decades that followed, but on August, August 6 of 1945, and then again three days later, President Truman decided to drop atomic bombs on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in an effort to effectively end the war. And I guess you could say it worked because Japan surrendered less than a week later. But, of course, the toll was devastating. Those cities were leveled, and estimates say that over 150,000, maybe as many as a quarter of a million people, died in those bombings. Uh, this is a picture of Nagasaki after the bombing. And this is a picture of Nagasaki today. It's a remarkable Contrast, isn't it? Nagasaki and Hiroshima or Hiroshima were considered cities of war then. Today, they are known and even are self-proclaimed as cities of peace. It's Christmas time, so we hear a lot, we talk a lot about peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. I was recently browsing Snapfish looking at all the Christmas card templates, and I was a bit overwhelmed to see how many cards utilize the word peace, or even more particularly this triumvirate, uh, peace, love, and joy. Those are words that we focus on this Advent season. Last week, Chuck preached on love. Today, I'm going to speak about peace. Next week, I think you'll be covering hope. And I think we're even throwing joy in for good measure on Christmas Eve. But by themselves, those are just happy words, aren't they? It's nice, of course. It's even good. It is good to extend peace to each other. But what is it about Christmas that gives us a greater sense of what it means to experience, to enjoy, and even to extend peace? I want us to give peace some more specificity this morning. What does it mean to know peace this Christmas? Well, first, in order to know peace, I think we have to juxtapose it against war. You see, I believe that peace can only be truly understood in and through a contrast with war and with the wrath of war. Notice what we read earlier this morning in our service. I know that our reading uh, was a bit chopped up. I didn't make use of all of Romans 5. I took selections from the chapter and for my purposes, I'm going to continue to be selective, but hopefully in a manner that would be true to the text and the message that God has for us. But at the beginning of that chapter, Paul asserts, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that we are saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. 
So do you see the immediate juxtaposition of peace against wrath? If we truly want to apprehend and appreciate peace, we're going to have to contemplate this wrath of God. The good news will only make sense as good news if we consider, first of all, our predicament, the bad news. See, Paul immediately follows up this introduction of the wrath of God with the statement that we were indeed God's enemies. That is, we were deserving of his wrath. Paul establishes that we were not righteous. For a righteous man, one might dare to die. For a good person, maybe. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, we were God's enemies and we were deserving of his wrath. I think we know this. I I think you believe this. But I'm not sure we always demonstrate the fortitude to face it and to spend time focusing upon it. Let me give you an example. We're about to, in a few minutes after the message, sing what I think is one of the great modern hymns of the church, In Christ Alone. The song was written by Stuart Townend and, and Keith Getty, who have really blessed the church with a number of great works. In verse 2, which, by the way, starts off with an incarnation theme, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. So I invite you to sing it as a Christmas carol this morning. But it then quickly progresses to the cross and incorporates these lyrics. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied? That proved to be pretty controversial for some Christians. You know, like Chuck, I, I, I find my roots in the Presbyterian tradition. Normally when I tell people I'm a Presbyterian, I usually qualify that because, honestly, I think some of my fellow Presbyterian brothers and sisters have gone off their theological rails. But anyway, just a few years ago, the mainline Presbyterian church balked at the idea of adding this song to their hymnal the way it was because of those lyrics. Even though otherwise they enjoyed singing it, they didn't like the present lyrics, so they suggested that that we substitute the wrath of God was satisfied for the love of God was magnified. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Do Do you see how easy it is to be uncomfortable with the wrath of God? Thankfully, I'm thankful that the author's of that hymn did not grant permission for it to be modified, for it to be watered down. And so it's not included in their hymnal. Friends, I would suggest that we can't truly know and appreciate peace if we don't know what we're saved from. In fact, ask yourself that question this morning. What are you saved from? If we were to take a a poll this morning, wonder how many Christians would say that we're saved from our sins? Indeed. Saved from ourselves? Yes. Saved from Satan? That too. Those aren't completely wrong answers because we are our worst enemies and our sins lead to death and condemnation and certainly Satan would have us perish in our sins. But isn't it an even more accurate and meaningful declaration to say that we are saved from the wrath of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because through Him we are saved from God. 
Think about that. We are saved from God by God. Contemplate. I encourage you to contemplate the wrath of God because it will actually magnify your view of peace. I don't mean for this to become sinners in the hands of an angry God. But I do believe that contemplating the wrath of God is the way of knowing peace because watered-down theology would have us believe that a God, of, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgments through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I wish I could take credit for that quote. It's from Richard Niebuhr who wrote Christ and Culture. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. He also wrote a lesser-known uh, book entitled The Kingdom of God in America where he critiques the liberal theology of his day, which I think is still prevalent today. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgments through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. But that so-called gospel, it's innocuous. It's just as innocuous as a Christmas card that, just, that you receive that just says peace, love, joy. Sounds nice, but it doesn't really grant us any peace. Knowing instead that we were objects of God's wrath, but that we have been saved from God's wrath, by God's Son, that will give us true peace. Peace is understood, peace is appreciated in juxtaposition with the wrath of God. But then also, true peace can only be achieved through the justification that comes by faith. Paul testifies, we have been justified by faith. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And further along, he adds, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I want us to focus just for a moment or two on this word justification. Because it also really is key to knowing and experiencing peace. Justification has been rightly defined as being declared righteous. And what Paul teaches us in Romans 5 is that this justification is accomplished by both a negative as well as a positive act. As I've already established, we were God's enemies, right? Paul says we were God's enemies. We were deserving of his wrath. But Paul says that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, So enemies have now been reconciled. Again, a term of warfare. In salvation, there is this act of forgiveness that leads to reconciliation that's accomplished through through Christ's atonement. See, God is just. God is always just. His character does not change. He does not simply forgive and forget. He deals with sin. But the beauty is that he presented his own son. And he punished him in our stead. He is our atoning sacrifice. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's what we call substitutionary atonement. But this reconciliation is really only half of the equation of justification. Paul also says that we shall be saved by his life. We shall be saved by Jesus' life. That by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So then, justification involves reconciliation through Christ's death, but also the establishment of righteousness through Christ's life, which is then credited to us. 
Christ's obedience is credited to our account. In fact, there is this kind of monetary language that's attributed to justification. For instance, on the cross, Jesus cried out what? It is finished. The word there recorded in Greek is tetelestai. It's one word, but it literally means it is paid. Jesus paid the debt. He paid the debt for our sins on the cross. But again, that's just the half of it. We don't, we don't have now a zero balance before God. Paul says that we were credited righteousness. The righteousness of God that's ours through the obedience of Christ and apprehended by faith alone. This is justification. We're reconciled by Christ's death, but we're also credited righteousness through his life. You know, my grandfather, uh, he served in the Pacific in World War II, and he was actually in Hiroshima within a month after the atomic bomb went off. Though he was exposed to a lot of radiation, he, uh, he lived a full life. He died just a few years ago. When my grandfather returned home after the war, he took a job uh, near his hometown in Peoria, Illinois, at a, at a new manufacturing plant that was established by R.G. Letourneau. I don't know if you've ever heard of Letourneau. There's a university named after him. He was a, he was a wonderful Christian man and a tremendous inventor. He invented many of the technologies that are used in earth-moving equipment. In fact, his, his company provided about 70% of the engineering and earth-moving uh, vehicles that were used by the Allies in World War II. My grandfather worked at that plant for half of his life. But over time, Letourneau was sold to Westinghouse, another company. And I think the equipment they produced by them went under another name, Wabco. But they, in turn, were bought out by another company, Komatsu, a Japanese company. That's a little ironic, isn't it? My grandfather was a sworn enemy to Japan. He fought against them in World War II. Now, when the the war ended, reconciliation was practically instant. In fact, I've never seen these photos myself, but my father attests to them. My grandfather has pictures taken of him in Hiroshima, shaking hands and arm in arm with Japanese workers as they sought to bring relief to the survivors. They were no longer enemies. But then, to top it off, he ended up working for a Japanese company towards the end of his life. Wow. How the fortunes of that nation, of those people, changed uh, unbelievably in one lifetime. Japan went from being devastated to having a trade surplus, a credit, if you will, with, with us. By the way, please don't misunderstand me with this illustration. I I realize that it fails, especially if it's understood by some to be some underhanded cloaked nationalism or some attack on on a foreign culture. Certainly is not. I simply mean it as a picture of how fortunes can change drastically. We are justified. That is, we are, first of all, reconciled to God. But then we're also credited Christ's righteousness, even though we were once his enemies. And just so you understand how flawed I see this illustration to be, here's another place where it fails greatly. Japan earned their reputation. They worked hard for it. But we're justified not by our works, but by faith. By trusting in the work that Jesus does for us. 
trusting in Christ, trusting that we are solely justified by his obedience is the only way that we're going to know true peace. Because we can never climb our way to God with our own works. You know, this year marks the, the 500th anniversary, as you know, of the Protestant Reformation, which was sparked by the courageous acts of Martin Luther when he posted 95 protests against the practices of the church of that day. But by Luther's own admission, did you know this? He did not become a born-again believer for almost two more years. He saw the flaws, but he didn't know the solution. Even when Luther made his protest, he was not enjoying peace with God because he didn't know the gospel that we are justified by faith. See, Luther had a keen sense of the righteousness of God, but he actually confessed that he hated God. He hated God for requiring this righteousness because he knew he didn't have any to offer God. But when Luther came to Romans, to this book, and he began to study it in earnest, his eyes were opened, he began to see the righteousness of God that comes to all who believe, a righteousness that is from God, that's credited to those who have faith in Jesus. It granted him joy, it granted him peace. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious gospel that we believe and hopefully proclaim. We're saved by grace through faith. We're justified in Jesus alone. His death grants us reconciliation with God. His life grants us a righteousness that's been credited to our account. Does that give you peace this morning? I hope it does. It should. Think about it. God has not just forgiven you for your sins that you've committed, but he's credited to you the righteousness of his son with whom he is well pleased. When he sees you, he sees Jesus. If you're found in him, you're justified. And this brings me to my final point. True peace is secured only through Jesus. The eternal God-man. I know this isn't the most traditional passage to read read during Advent, but I think it does really emphasize the necessity of the incarnation. Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, that is, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In another place, Paul puts it this way. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, consistently, Paul presents Jesus as the second Adam, as the new Adam. And the emphasis there is on his true humanity. You know, when you take a step back and evaluate what we believe as Christians... I don't know about you, but of all the doctrines we hold, is anything more astonishing than the incarnation? That God took on flesh and became a man? It's not uncommon to encounter religions that promote the idea that men become gods, right? Humanism, the spirit of our day, you might say the religion of our day, promotes the idea that we are progressing, that we maybe can become gods. Even in the Japan of World War II, the Emperor Hirohito was considered a divine figure. Of course, the fact that he could not save his people from the wrath of their enemy changed the way people saw him. 
It's not uncommon to see various religions deify a human being, but what's unique about Christianity is that we don't proclaim our ascension to heaven, but that God comes down to us and takes on our flesh. One of my favorite Christmas carols, which is not one of the more familiar ones, is All My Heart This Night Rejoices. You know that one? All my heart this night rejoices. I know, I shouldn't sing. (laughs) Verse 2 contains these lyrics. God is man. Man to deliver. His own son now is one with our blood forever. God is man. You believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal God-man? It's flabbergasting when you think about it. J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God, puts it this way. He says, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race. And that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and and fully divine as he was human. It's here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. And he goes on to say that if you can believe in the Incarnation, well, then everything else is just cake. I believe that's true. It is fantastic. It sounds like a fairy tale. It's true. Sounds like a fairy tale, which is why some people probably poke fun at it. In that great work, Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby says he likes to pray to the Christmas Jesus, right? Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn baby Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. Maybe that's a swipe at what we believe. Maybe it's just sacrilegious humor, but it's not bad theology. (laughs) God became man, and it's meant to blow our minds. But why? I mean, why? Why did God become man? Because it was necessary. It was necessary for our salvation. Again, Paul establishes that sin and death came through a man and spread to all men, so all are sinners. You know, it doesn't make a difference, by the way, how good a person you think you are. If you're a descendant from Adam, you're a sinner. Paul puts it this way, death spread to all men because in Adam all sin, one trespass, led to the condemnation of all men. We may find that doctrine revolting, but death and condemnation is what we deserve. We must accept that. 
And that's because sin is an affront to God and we are collectively his enemies apart from Christ. But where one man's trespass led to condemnation, one man's obedience leads to justification and life. Jesus is our new Adam. Jesus meets the righteous requirements of the law. And it had to be this way. Again, because God in his holiness, he doesn't relax his standard of perfect obedience. Without the incarnation, we were up a creek without a paddle. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is the only way. It's the only way of salvation. Almost a thousand years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, he presented his rational argument for the necessity of the incarnation, entitled Cur Deus Homo, or simply Why Why God Man. Anselm writes, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person must be both God and man. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and yet could not should be in a person who could. There's a logic to it. I'm not sure that such rationality will ever fully explain the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation, but it does speak to the fact that Jesus alone, he alone is our peace. Ask yourself, if there was any other way to achieve peace with God, would God have sent his son in the flesh to live for us and then ultimately to die for us? Seems silly if there was another way. Well, I realize I've used up nearly all my time this morning having us meditate on what it means that Christ is our peace, but at the risk of belaboring this, I I just want to leave us with a little application. I'll utilize verse 2 as the directive for this application. There Paul says, Through him, through him we have obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in grace. Standing in grace means that none of this is our own doing, and that means there's no room for pride. Again, to exhaust the illustration, did you know that the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was actually not meant for them? It was meant for another city, Kukura, Can you imagine being a resident of that city and finding out afterwards what you had avoided? Would you think that it was because you were better than the citizens of Nagasaki? Of course not. During this fire, some some people have really suffered great loss. I think there were up to 300 homes lost. If your neighbor suffered loss in one of the recent fires, would you claim that it was because you were more righteous than they were? Again, of course not. Fire, by the way, is a perfect symbol of judgment. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, and our God is a consuming fire. Fire and destruction should, should sober us, right, as pictures of judgment to come. And yet Jesus warns us, Jesus warns believers against proclaiming that the, 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 das- the disaster that befalls others is deserving. Right? He says, you too repent or you will perish. In the same way, Paul later in this letter tells the Roman Christians not to be proud. Don't be proud for you've been shown mercy and stand solely by faith. I think an apprehension of grace should beget the experience of peace, 
yes, but never pride. And humility is what will lead us to extend goodwill towards other men. God is about the business of extending his peace, and so we must be humble peacemakers and extend patience to others, not wanting anyone to perish. Second, standing in this grace and knowing this peace can only be accessed by faith in Jesus. Know that. He is the only way. So if you don't know peace this morning, I invite you to come to Jesus. And I invite you to come empty-handed. What is the work that God requires of you, you might ask? Some people came to Jesus once and asked that. What is the work that God requires of, it, of us? You know what he said? The work that God requires of you is to believe in the one whom he sent. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God is not calling you to improve yourself or to work your way up to heaven. Instead, he's come down to you to save you. So take hold of that salvation today by faith alone and Christ alone. And don't let another day go by without experiencing that peace that he has in store for you. And finally as it's always really the ultimate application doxology, right? For Christians, rejoice. Be joyful in this season. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Advent can be a season of rejoicing because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also a season of hope in the coming glory. We live in this period in in between his two comings, in between his two advents, In the first, he came to bear our sins, but he will come again. And this time he will bring with him the glory of his kingdom. The new Jerusalem will descend from the clouds. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know what that means? City of peace. That'll be our abode forever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Till he comes, may he grant us peace. Let's pray together.